0: Uh, Chapter 4, this one's called Stabilizers. Uh, Chapter 4, Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord. O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Because remember, God had just spared Nineveh. Jonah uh, just shockingly... uh, bigoted and racist and confused. He wanted his arch enemy, the Ninevites, to be smitten by God, but they weren't. And now he, he melts down. That was what we looked at last week. Uh, verse three, now, O Lord, take my life. It's better for me to die than to live. He lost his will to live because a big thing in his life, which was a, essentially a political position, a foreign affairs political position, didn't go the way he wanted. He pretty much lost his will to live. And the Lord said, "Have you any right to be angry?" Jonah went out and sat at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, shat, <laughs> made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, <laughs> and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east winds and the sun blazed on Jonah's head. He grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do. <laughs> he said, I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, but you didn't make it it'll make it grow. it sprang up overnight, it's temporary and died overnight. But Nineveh, you are so concerned about this. but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. Many cattle as well should I not be concerned about that great city? Uh, okay, so last week we looked at his meltdown and it was it was fun, but it was pretty sobering because we saw how, um, if we, like Jonah, put too much of our gravitation, put too much of our weight, if our center of gravity is on something other than Jesus, and that thing shifts—political position, personal health, how the family's doing, career, finance—who wins in November? if too much of our weight is on that and it doesn't go the way we want and our primary weight is not in Jesus on the rock of ages then we are vulnerable because when this goes the way we don't we we go head over heels and we crash and that's what's happening to him here he was a believer but his weight was not sufficiently on the Lord his weight was on other things and when they went wrong he was in trouble that was one metaphor from last week. week. Feet, where's your weight? The other one was heart. That our heart has got a radar. This is a radar. It looks out for for things that satisfy us and give us identity, and they lock onto things that do. And oh, happy day when you find Jesus, you lock onto Jesus. But then the heart keeps a little bit of its radar still going for other things that could ultimately satisfy. And unhelpful, Lee. And helpfully, lodges, locks onto those things as well. And we said last week, we need to detach from things that we're too attached to other than Jesus. We need to take off our weight off things that we're overly leaning on other than Jesus, whether it be a political position, like it was here, or something else. And that's the way we avoid meltdown. And that's really stabilizer number one, because this week we're looking at some lesser... Uh, stabilizers the big stabilizer number one by way of recap is make sure Jesus is your only Lord he is the ultimate stabilizer so that's uh, stabilizer number one we spent all of last week on it I want to look this week at some lesser contributory stabilizers some wisdom from Scripture wisdom do's and don'ts from this uh, last chapter in the book of Jonah because his, his, his meltdown was pretty significant, wasn't it? So what stabilizes us? What helps us? Hmm, nice bit of background music. I like it. The first stabilizer is build in physical and emotional rhythms of rest. Build in physical and emotional rhythms of rest. So you have probably figured out that you are an amazing, intricate blend of physical, uh, emotional, and spiritual. Have you figured that out? Uh, Genesis speaks us speaks to us about that. That when God made us, He Adam. He took He took uh, the dust uh, of the ground, physical, and He and He breathed into it. With this blend of physical and spiritual, therefore, my physical state and my emotional state is connected to my spiritual state." Jonah had gone through a great deal in recent days. He'd had the stress of disobedience, running from God, you know how stressful that can be. he had had the storm, he'd had the fish, he had had the uh, the time in Nineveh when he was, uh, was obviously a, lots of adrenaline and, and stress of preaching uh, to that city. He'd been through an awful lot and the strain of all of this was hitting him emotionally and, and physically. And I think that, that deeply impacted, just in the temporary, his spiritual well being, his grumpiness with God, his, his, his worldview. It, was all, it all seemed to be related. This burnout that he was having was not just a crisis of faith, he was whacked, he was exhausted, he had been through an awful lot. And I think that led to his self absorption. distorted view of what what was really important. Interestingly, in 1 Kings 19, a similar thing happens with Elijah. He has a great victory. He wins over the prophets of Baal. And then listen to some of the things. He was afraid and ran for his life. This is a man who's just taken on the prophets of Baal. Uh, He was afraid and ran for his life. He sat down and, and he prayed that he might die. This is the great prophet Elijah. I've had enough Lord, take my life, I'm no better than my ancestors and he lay down under a tree and now listen to the remedy for his, his, his depression, uh, he fell asleep, an angel then touched him and said get up and eat and fed him, he ate and drank and then lay down and went to sleep again, that happened twice round, God ministered to his physical needs, sleep, eat, drink food, and that helped him back to a place of faith. So let's just think about ourselves. The Bible says, we know the Bible says, love is patient and lovers." Have you noticed that you're more patient and more kind when you get more sleep? Yeah. So sleeping helps our spiritual state. It's not just sleep. We need to pray, Lord, send, send us the fruit of the Holy Spirit of love. Love is patient, love is kind. We want the spiritual fruit of kindness and love but also get some sleep don't get hangry try and eat in the right way these things are related if you over spiritualize things you'll just be praying and you won't be eating if you under spiritualize things you'll just be sleeping and eating well and not drawing on the the strength of the Holy Spirit both ends Uh, Charles Spurgeon said these he referred to uh, things like food drink Uh, nature, what we're surrounded by now, a brisk breeze on the face. He refers to these things as great remedies. This is the great 19th century London preacher Charles Spurgeon. He didn't just say pray and draw on the spirit's strength. He said take these great remedies of rest, food, nature, uh, relaxation, uh, walking Walking in the sun, walking walking in the forest. I've got the quote here in, in yellow. Great remedies, he calls these things. And I think, you know, a really sort of obvious contrast or example of this is sometimes when we counsel one another, which counseling means it, it's a bit, it's sort of it's more heavy duty advice. You know, brother to brother and sister to sister and so on, we we can advise and and encourage and give one another advice, but then there's a level of counseling. It's like, I just need a bit more. And sometimes when we're counseling one another, we get to the place of, oh, and please also see a doctor and get your blood checked out. And it's not that we're minimizing uh, the healing power of God, actually we're acknowledging that the healing power of God is is spiritual, but then there's physical elements because God has made us physical. So if you're struggling with some just some emotions. I'm sure you need prayer and the Holy Spirit, minimally, I know you do, but you might need to be checked out by a doctor as well, or see someone who's excellent in medicine, but might not know anything about Jesus. That's okay. God has made doctors, God has made medicine. We are an intricate, intricate blend of spiritual and uh, physical. That's stabilizer two. Stabilizer three. Settle that you will always be a work in progress. So where do I get that from? I've had two thoughts on this because I've been mulling on Jonah's, I mean last week we took a deep dive into Jonah's heart from what we were told. This week we're looking at things like the vine and the worm and how we got grumpy about sunburn and so on. I've got two thoughts here, I think I think Jonah was naive about after-action blues. He had just taken on Nineveh in the strength of the Lord and brought the city to its knees, literally. And I think he forgot that after significant output, there's usually an internal vulnerability, especially if you've done really well or it's been really disappointing. And as we saw last week, Jonah had done really well, but he was still really disappointed. So he had these two things, extremes going on. I, I just think he should have known himself better. And I'm sure he did next time round. And he could have said something to himself like, okay, I am going to be grumpy pants for about three days. After... after Preaching in Nineveh, I'm going to be grumpy pants for three days. So I'm just going to try and extra put a guard on my lips. I know I'm going to be prone to be frustrated with people. When a small thing breaks down, like the cable goes down in the home or the, the dishwasher breaks down, when the sp- spilled champagne, I know I'm going to be especially frustrated. And I'm probably going to get cross with God. I'm going to start venting. So I just need to take a breath. I know myself. And after action blues is a thing, I'm going to be particularly on guard emotionally. My second th- so I don't get cheeky with God. My second thought here is he seemed unwilling to just keep learning small things from the Lord and big things, but small things are shown here. So it's quite interesting. Um, this angry thing. The first time, God says, do you have a right to be angry about Nineveh, not being smitten? And he doesn't reply, but you can feel his reply. Then God, a few verses later, says, do you have a right to be angry about this vine that's no longer giving you shade? He says, yes, I do. Both instances, he's not thinking, I've got stuff to learn from the Lord, big and small. He's just gone into, he's just got a bit calloused, really. So the thought is, friends, let's keep learning from God in big things and small. He had just done well, he'd done badly running to Tarshish, badly on the boat, then he'd done well in the belly of the fish, repenting, he'd done well in Nineveh, but now he's just showing he's got stuff to learn as well. So please don't be disappointed, overly disappointed and surprised with yourself. When God uses you mightily in the morning, Monday morning, you're Mr. Big-Hearted, Mrs. Generous to everybody, and then in the afternoon, you hit road rage. Don't think, what's going going on is God is simultaneously using you whilst training you, and that's going to happen all your life. If you're a small group leader, you can have the night of nights with your small group. You know when you're just so effortlessly on it, sensitive to the spirit, bringing prophetic words and encouragement, and then your Mr. and Mrs. fun as well. And you're just like, I've nailed this. And then an hour later, you kick your dog you think, oh, what's going on? This is a mystery. I'm such a sinner. No, God is sim- God's economical. He will use you while simultaneously training you. This happens with others. Please don't be silly. If Jonah and Elijah can have a meltdown and be weak in some areas, your parents can. Pastors. Church leaders, small group leaders, deacons can. They're, they're gonna blow it. They've got weaknesses as well, but God is economical. He will keep using them while simultaneously training them. Uh, we've got some great friends in South Africa. One of them is called Francois. Francois Hunus. Uh, so he led a church for many years. He's just the funnest spiritual, nice, naughty pastor. He's just terrific. And um, one, he lives in a small town. He lived in a small town called Somerset West. And on the way to church, uh, no, not on the way to church, during the week, he just had some road rage. He's been a pastor for like 30 years this time, and he got some road rage. Um, And he wound down the window and shouted out, you stupid cow! (laughs) To this, this, I think it was a person, probably a lady. And she was part of the church and and she didn't didn't overreact. She didn't go, this is just ridiculous, he's a pastor. No, she understood that God is simultaneously using Francois whilst training Francois, but she got the word out. She got that that Sunday uh, in church. Uh, One of the other elders, he'd he'd hired a a cow suit. And, you know, he came into the building as a cow. and There was just great merriment about about it all. I just thought that's such maturity uh, in a church community. Stabilizer number four. Acquire a big, displacing, evangelistic vision. So I think a bit of what was going on here, you know, know, God actually says to him, Jonah, you're getting very grumpy about something this big, the vine. And you're not concerned about Nineveh, 120,000 people. Now that's part of burnout, isn't it? Where you get totally self-absorbed and you lose perspective, so we get that. But I think a a really wonderful thing to note is that when we have an other-centric, and that's a God-centric and other-centric, love God, love your neighbor, when we have an other-centric disposition, we are much less vulnerable to the hit of smaller things going wrong in our lives. But if our big vision is essentially our own comfort and own well-being, you know, if our, our worldview has shrunk to, me, look out for number one and I'll get by. Then we feel cable TV going down, other small and medium sized crisis in our lives. We feel them harder than we should because we're not armored by a a bigger vision. When you've got a bigger, all-consuming vision and passion, if you take a hit here, it's like, that's fine. I'm not too sensitive there. It is annoying and I've got to figure it out. But I'm living for this. So if that goes wrong, it's not such a biggie. To say it another way, a big vision for the Lord helps us not sweat the small stuff. And, and I just want to say again, thank you so much. I think we've been living that out in this small but quite emotional aspects of masks and no masks and six feet, eight foot, three foot, one foot. Just all of that. I, I just think we've said to one another, brothers and sisters we're going to figure this out and get through and not overreact. We're going to combine faith in God with human responsibility. We're going to work with one another's conscience, some stronger, some weaker in this area. I think what's helped us is we've kept Jesus and the mission of the church and the importance of the gospel, we've held that higher than some of these things which do hit us. They're like jabs, aren't they? It's a difficult time to live at the moment. And I think just keeping that has helped us go, okay, I'm not going to thump you. I'm just going to absorb it because we've got something bigger we're doing together. Jesus said if we lose our lives for him, we will find them. Living in the Gaithersburg area, some of us love it. Some of us think, oh, it's it's not a great place. When we have a vision for living for Jesus here, we cope better with the frustrations of living in this area. A big, displacing vision. Oh no, we're short on money this month. Yeah, but we had enough to tithe. We had enough to be, be generous and give to the mission of God. It takes the sting out of these things. It also makes us resilient to temptation. I remember when I was, I think I was, I think I was 16, and I was giving my, uh, one of my first um, talks. I used to go on Christian camps. And I gave my first sermon at the age 15 or 16, and the instruction was, introduce it, give three points, and then sit down and shut up as quickly as you can. Keep it. Um, and I remember one of the passages I preached on just right back back then as a teenager was how King David um, spotted Bathsheba. You know, he spotted her on the the, the roof of the house next door and he got tempted and called her over and things spiralled. Um, there's an interesting phrase, it says, it was the season when kings went off to war, but David stayed at the palace. And that just, that, that, that's marked me, when I, from the age of 15 or 16, that giving ourselves to what we're meant to do in God, being busy in God, going off to war, in inverted commas, that keeps us from temptation. It's when we don't have a higher, more compelling vision for the kingdom of God coming on earth. that then we're just trying to figure out what on earth we're here for, and that's when we're just more susceptible to different types of temptation. Stabilizer number five. Be part of a team and be in community. No criticism of Jonah on this one. He was flying solo. That's just the way it was. But I think we should take the opportunity to note that if he had had a team with him, even one friend with him, he could have been significantly stabilized. Jesus sent his disciples out, was it one by one? How did Jesus send his disciples out? Was it one by one or two by two? It's, isn't it, you can cover more ground one by one though, can't you? There was a high value Jesus placed on community The Lord puts the lonely in families. That can be family families or friendship families. There's a great verse in 2 Corinthians 2.12 when Paul says, listen to this, he said, The Lord opened a door of opportunity. God opened a door of opportunity. But he said, I was uncomfortable in my spirit because I did not find Titus there. He was saying, God has provided an opportunity, but if I can't do this thing in team, I'm not going to do it. I feel uncomfortable about even taking on a good opportunity in the Lord if I'm not with a brother. If I don't have team around me. We're designed for community. If you're new to our church, our church, don't, don't be fooled. Um, we're led by a team with a leader. I'm the leader of that team, but we're led by a team with a leader not a leader with a team it's not oh, you pick the leader and and yeah just for appearances sake you must have a team no we believe in team we believe in community we also believe in leadership but it's leadership within a team um, I don't know if you follow the Barna Institute or Tom Raynor or some others anyway there's been a just a whole run as you can imagine of research agencies putting out articles about all sorts of things. I'm talking particularly about the future of the church in America. And it's all pretty ominous. I've been reading them since the beginning of COVID, and um, I just want to give you some headlines now. This is particularly one sort of come out last week, which is a full three or four months into this unusual season in our nation. The highlight, high, high level—not highlights, they're lowlights. The high level. Um, opinion of these research agencies is that within a year from now, one in five churches will close. And one in seven pastors will say, I'm done. And one in three churchgoers will stop going to church for good. And it's not just doom and gloom unsustainable, unsubstantiated. They've interviewed thousands of pastors and so on. And it's not just that pastors are going, (laughs) it's so hard. It's that they feel that they're having to build bricks without straw, essentially, to use a phrase from the Old Testament. Um, And when they talk about churches closing and a whole third never coming back. What they're saying is these same agencies were reporting that over the next 10 years, nominal Christianity would would reduce and reduce as it gets harder in America to be a nominal Christian. So as the next 10 years go by, this was before COVID, it gets socially harder to be a Christian. The benefits of being a churchgoer, humanly speaking, culturally speaking, reputationally speaking, get reduced. And so nominal Christians, who are not really, haven't really just settled that Jesus is their Lord, come hell or high water, over the next 10 years, about a third would drop out of church. They're just saying, that's been concertinaed into the next 10 months, not 10 years. Such are the pressures and such are the opportunities just to ease out of church. And you don't do a huge jump, do you? It's little by little. They think 10 years worth of drift could happen in 10 months. And I have mixed feelings about that. Obviously, there's an absolute tragic element to it, but there's also a refining element to it. Now, I'm not predicting that's gonna be the case with us. I'm praying it won't be the case in the nation. I like stats like this because it helps us pray. No, Lord. And it helps us intervene, doesn't it? I'm constantly sending out pastors, if you are one of these, if you're one of these, put up your hand before it's too late. We can help. You need money? we got money. You need people to move and help? We can get people to move and help. Just don't wait until it's too late. We can intervene. We can help. We can help one another. I think churches that make it quite hard for people to be Christians, are probably better off, you know, churches that really do preach, Jesus is Lord, are probably more robust in this time, because more of their members have settled, Jesus is Lord, come hell or high water, let's keep encouraging one another, brothers and sisters, let's watch out for one another, I'm a man on a mission, I don't want anyone to be lost through this time, we'll do whatever it takes but obviously we can't create the Lordship of Jesus in one another's hearts, can we? We can just help cultivate. Healthy spirituality is a combination of truth and community. That's why we say if you need to participate in church life online, if that's all you can do, at least you get the truth, the truth. Which is better than a kick in the head, right? But when we try and do this together, we get truth. And community. I know it's community from a distance. It's community through masks. It's community, strange, but nonetheless, it's still community. And we're going to need to figure out how to do Hebrews 10 going forward. Hebrews 10:24, 25. Do not give up meeting together. How, how do we do that? It's not easy, is it? But God will give us a way through. Stabilizer number six: be in Scripture. I just nicked a point from... Remember the one the, the episode when Jonah was in the belly of the whale and we saw him pray using all, psalms? He'd obviously memorised scripture because he didn't have a you know, little book of psalms in his pocket. And he prayed all of chapter 2 really as a prayer of repentance and, and recommitment to the Lord using psalms. And, and we said, well done, Jonah. When you're emotionally low, it's particularly important... to to use scripture to help shape not just your life but your prayers to the Lord and as a result in chapter 2 Jonah his prayer of distress was God-centered please say distressed but God-centered that was him in chapter 2 in chapter 4 he prayed prayers of distress but void of scripture and they were emotion-centered Please say distressed but emotion-centered. That's the two Jonahs we see. Both prayers of distress, chapter 2, God-centered, chapter 4, emotion-centered. Simply let's remind ourselves of that to be in the Word. And our series is done except to say once more that the new is in the old revealed. Uh, The Old Testament says someone's coming, the New Testament says someone has come and Jesus is our great Jonah. We spoke about that a number of weeks ago in several of these episodes. But just to say it again, some of these Old Testament historical stories, God and his sovereignty has worked them so that we can compare and contrast uh, the apparent hero or non-hero of the story with our great hero, Jesus. And Jonah was sent by God, but he was reluctant. Jesus was sent by God the Father, but he was eager. Uh, Je- Jonah said, no, I'm off to Tarshish. Nice place, Tarshish. Jesus said, no, I will come and be uh, God incarnate on earth. To- Jesus came to the Nineveh of earth. And he didn't take any detours. He just came. He entered not one day into the city like Jonah. He entered thoroughly into our humanity, dying even death, death on a cross. And when the mercy of God came to you and I, And others, and as it keeps coming, Jesus doesn't sulk. He doesn't draw attention to himself. He doesn't get grumpy. At the right hand of the Father now, he celebrates. He is thrilled at the mercy of God the Father given through him to those on earth who will look to Jesus, the great Jonah, for salvation. And I want to say, if you haven't done that yet, if you haven't put your faith in the great Jonah, Jesus, please do that. If you have already, put it put your faith in him afresh today. Not to get born again again, not to get saved again. That's done. Hallelujah. But just to say again, you are my Lord. You are my great Jonah, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.